0: We pray, dear Jesus, as we review the final events of your life before your death and resurrection, we are filled with awe at your love for us and at your determination to save us no matter what the cost. Build our faith in you throughout this morning's worship service and send us home today excited to live the lives of freedom that you have won for us. We pray this in your name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. We begin our walk through Holy Week on Sunday, which is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, for reasons we will shortly talk about. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of our God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, the Passover festival was a wild time to be in Jerusalem. It really was. So Jerusalem back in these days, just to set the, the context for you a little bit, the population of Jerusalem was about 25,000 people, which was fairly respectable for an ancient city. For reference, the city of Rome, which was like you know, the center of the world, was one million. So 25,000, pretty big, not the biggest, but this was the capital city of Judea, 25,000 people. And yet during this Passover festival, the city would balloon to six times its normal size. So now you're looking at 150,000 to even 200,000 people. And every year in Jerusalem, the, the city leaders would have to build extra roads. They'd have to build extra bridges just to accommodate this influx of Jewish pilgrims from across the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, the Roman governor, who is in charge of this whole region, he moved from his seaside palace and during the week of the Passover, he stayed in Jerusalem, bringing a legion of soldiers with him in an attempt to make sure that peace was kept. There had been plenty of rebellions where the Jews are trying to take back their promised land, and the Romans were concerned about a rebellion, especially during Passover week. So you have tons of people, you have all this extra infrastructure, you have all these extra precautions. It was kind of a wild time to be in Jerusalem, But then what's cool about it is as the week goes on, people continue to enter the city from all over the empire. (coughs) Including celebrities. Including famous people. And I could imagine if you are a Jewish kid at Passover, maybe you're sitting on top of the wall in Jerusalem and you see one entourage come and you see the next entourage come. And everybody who's Jewish is coming to the city. And I can imagine sitting there on top of the wall just waiting to see which celebrity might be arriving next. Because from the rich to the poor, every Jewish person is here. Now, this particular year, the celebrity that everybody was most excited about was the one called Jesus of Nazareth. (coughs) The people had heard about his teaching and his miracles and his claims to be the Messiah, But he had done most of it up in the north, in Galilee, away from the central capital of Jerusalem. Now he's coming down to hundreds of thousands of people, and everyone is so excited. They're laying their coats before him as a cultural sign of respect. They're waving palm branches for the same reason. They're using that ancient cry, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. But I think it's debatable what things they thought that he was going to save them from. So, some people wanted Jesus to save them from Rome. They thought finally, he would lead the rebellion that would stick. Maybe he would start an army, cast the Romans off, and now the Jewish people could finally be in charge of their promised land again. Just like the good old days of David and Solomon. So they wanted Jesus to save them politically. Other people... Were excited that maybe Jesus would save them from hunger, or sickness, or poverty. They had heard about his miracles, maybe they had seen some of his miracles, and so they were thrilled for this incredible, once in a lifetime, source of free food and free health care. You know, Lord, save us. And then there were others in the crowd who didn't want Jesus to save them from anything. They actually thought they were saving everybody else from Jesus. And these were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones who had their perfect religious system, they thought, until this upstart rabbi from Nazareth, of all places, came down and messed it all up, telling people, you can go to heaven for free by faith in the Savior, instead of following all these laws that they had carefully put together. And so these enemies of Jesus were the ones devising a devious plan to have him killed by the end of the week. Lord, save us from our Roman overlords. Lord, save us from our earthly problems. We're going to save the people from you. But none of these groups were right. Jesus hadn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. Jesus hadn't come to fix only earthly problems. Jesus was not a liar and an imposter. He was the son of God. But he had come to suffer and die for the sins of the world to give his robes, as it were, for ours, to take his perfect life and distribute it to us who believe in him, and to take our flawed, sinful lives on himself to the cross to pay the price that we deserved for all of it. So Jesus was the Savior. The Lord would save us, but he would do it all in a very unexpected way. So he entered the city in an unexpected way, riding on a donkey, of all creatures. He celebrated the Passover in an unexpected way by getting arrested after dinner and hauled off to a middle-of-the-night trial. He endured his trial in an unexpected way by making absolutely no arguments in his defense. And then he saved the world in an unexpected way, the most unexpected way of all. He saved the world by dying. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. On Friday, as everybody looked at Jesus' lifeless body hanging on the cross, they assumed he had lost. Three days later, as people stood outside of his empty grave, and as more and more people began to see Jesus face to face, it slowly began to become evident that he had won. Salvation had been accomplished, sin defeated, death destroyed. This celebrity coming into the city on this Passover festival was not the kind of savior that probably anyone quite expected, but he was exactly the kind of savior that we need. We pray. We praise You, O God, for the great acts of love by which You redeemed us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. As He was acclaimed by those who scattered their garments and palm branches in His path, so may we also always hail Him as our King and follow Him with perfect confidence, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We're calling today Holy Week Sunday. I was talking to uh, Tiv about this. The technical name for this is Passion Sunday, like Mel Gibson's movie Passion of the Christ. However, Passion today, I think, sounds more like Valentine's Day. Maybe it doesn't communicate quite what Jesus did. So we're calling this Holy Week Sunday. We walk through all the events. We don't have time to cover everything that happened in Holy Week. Um, Maybe you remember how on Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple. That didn't mean he was sweeping the floor, but that meant that during this week, when all these visitors were here, was the best time to make money, and so the Jewish leaders had turned the portion of the temple set up for foreigners and visitors, they had turned that section into the place where all the animals were kept, to be sold and to make a great profit. So if you were not Jewish, and you came on this festival to try to learn more about the Savior, your worship space was filled up by animal sounds and animal smells, and you're out of luck. So on Monday of Holy Week, Jesus took off his belt, drove those animals out, flipped over the tables, and said to the Jewish leaders, why are you turning my father's house into a den of robbers? They weren't super excited about it, but there, there wasn't a lot they could do in front of the crowds. On Tuesday... Jesus went and sat on the steps of the temple and taught. And as people came in to give their offerings and buy their sacrifices, he expounded on many different religious matters. You can read some of his teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, his opponents were infuriated that he's just parked himself right where everyone's coming through. And so they sent different groups of people to try to trick him and trap him with, you know, tricky questions but they couldn't stump Jesus or make him look foolish in any way. Instead, he made everyone look foolish who questioned him until finally they left him alone and let him teach. Wednesday, we don't know a lot that Jesus did. He had a big weekend coming up. Uh, Our story then picks up on Monday, Thursday, the night of the actual Passover celebration. Everybody's eating their Passover lamb in rooms all over the city, and Jesus and his disciples gather to do the same. Jesus knows, although they don't, that this will be their last supper. We read from Luke chapter 22 beginning at verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Isn't this a weird week, by the way, for the disciples? Go find a random donkey. It's going to be waiting by the corner. The owner will let you have it we don't have a room. Well, go look for this room and there's going to be one all set up and the owner will just let you have it. And he does. Um, So now it's Passover meal time. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This also is the word of our God. So what happened next? They had their Passover meal. Uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, as we heard. And then Jesus and his disciples did what they had been doing all week long. Every night they went out for a devotion, and they sang a psalm out in the Garden of Gethsemane on top of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his disciples went to Gethsemane, and if that name is ringing bells for you, maybe it's the suffering and anguish that Jesus went through as he now sat and envisioned just what was coming, bearing on his shoulders the the weight of all the sins of the world. Jesus was so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat drops of blood, which is a medical condition that's been observed in prisoners who are about to be executed. Jesus, of course, is still a free man, having devotion with his disciples. They don't know that anything's going on, but Jesus knows that Judas, the traitor, is leading a group of Jewish soldiers down from the city and they arrest Jesus, and they drag him off and give him a completely illegal middle-of-the-night trial where they condemn him to death for blasphemy, which is the crime of a man claiming to be God. Blasphemy was technically punishable by stoning, but the Jewish leaders needed Roman approval to do anything so drastic. So they waited until morning, and then they brought Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was just hoping for peace during the week, Uh, just hoping there would not be a revolt. And this is his worst nightmare, to see a mob of angry Jewish people leading a prisoner. And so he begins to question them. The crowd begins to get riled up. And Pilate, seeking peace and very afraid of a revolt, uh, ends up becoming an infamous historical figure by condemning a clearly innocent man, not just to stoning, but even allowing them to throw him in with a crucifixion detail that was happening that day. Crucifixion, the worst punishment for the worst of criminals in the Roman world. And so now Jesus' enemies have got him right where they want him. They think he's not going to be a problem for them much longer. But of course, Jesus has gotten himself right to the place where he wants to be, so that now he can suffer and die on the Passover day for the sins of the world. Our reading picks up at John chapter 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Just interjecting, I don't know of a more specific prophecy where a thousand years earlier the details of what was going to happen to his clothes were exactly fulfilled. How could you fake this while you're being crucified? Uh, Clearly Jesus is the promised Son of God. Also, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, (coughs) and so scripture (coughs) would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. That was very convenient. But a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This also is the word of our God. (coughs) Brothers and sisters in Jesus, for the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about bone marrow transplants. There's a reason for this. Um, As many of you know, the 14-year-old daughter of a dear friend of our family just had a bone marrow transplant. She underwent the transplant on March 2nd. And there's been some improvement. It's been slow. We're continuing to pray for her. But something that I've learned is just how tough and difficult it is to actually go through a bone marrow transplant. And the recovery of it is, is not fun at all. It actually sounds, with all the details, like something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. But it's kind of a last resort, when there's nothing else to try. And this is the case for my good friend's 14-year-old daughter. She has this debilitating disease she's been battling for years that's consuming her, and so really the last hope is to press the reset button and to refresh, to get healthy bone marrow and let her body refresh itself, you know, just from the inside out. Coincidentally, the day of her bone marrow transplant, was Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. Um, So on that day, as this was happening, I had a lot of emotions. I was texting with my friend. We were praying about this a lot Mm -hmm. as a family. But one of the overriding emotions I had was the emotion of just immense generosity. Um, I'm sorry, immense gratefulness. So thankful, so grateful, and so grateful for the generosity of the donor, because she's having this transplant which is gonna save her life, hopefully, we pray. But where did this marrow come from? It came from a random 20-year-old man who signed up for this bone marrow registry. And he doesn't know her at all. They just were a match. And so he was willing to fly across the country and put his life on pause and undergo a kind of a painful donation process. We have to go completely under and be you know, fully anesthetized, and uh, all, everything that comes with it, all the inconvenience, just for this person that he doesn't even know her name. So I was overwhelmed with gratefulness that that this, this kid would do this for someone he doesn't know. And the night before the transplant, I was talking with my kids about this because we'd been praying for Tatum, and I explained to my five-year-old son that this donor is kind of like Jesus. Someone... Our friend has bad stuff inside of her, right? Down to the bone level. And yet he is going to take the good stuff that's inside of him and give it to her to save her life. That's it's kind of like Jesus, right? We have this problem of sin and Jesus is giving us his righteousness. So I explained this to Elijah, said he's kind of like Jesus. And then Elijah's response caught me off guard. He said, okay, so he's going to give her his good stuff. Is, is he going to take her bad stuff? I thought about it. I said, well, that goes well beyond the scope of a bone marrow donation. It's not the donor's job to take away the bad stuff. I mean, they, they do chemotherapy. They do these various treatments. They try to weaken her body and remove the bone marrow, and you hope that the bad stuff is gone. And then you put in the good stuff, and you, you, know, you hope and pray for the best. But the, the donor's job is just to give the clean marrow the donor's job is not to take the bad marrow on himself but what if it was what if the only way to do a bone marrow transplant was to put two beds side by side and input each person's bone marrow completely into the other what if the only way to do it was that the sick person would get all the healthy, strong marrow and would slowly begin to recover, and the healthy person would get all of the horribly diseased marrow and would weaken and sicken and die. If that was the case, how many people would sign up to be a bone marrow donor? Would you do it? Let's take it further. Would you let your kid do it? Would you let your child sign up for this? What if it was your one and only son? No matter how much he begged and pleaded for the opportunity to help somebody else, would you let him exchange his bone marrow with a diseased person and let all of their sickness enter him so that he horribly suffers and dies from their disease so that they can be clean and healthy and strong and take his health from him? would you let your one and only son do it? I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could let my son do this. Not even for a family member. Not even for a friend. It's too much. But what about for a stranger? What about for an enemy? What about for someone who hates you? What about for some kind of terribly evil person, let's say an evil dictator who has been spreading war and death and destruction across the world with his selfish, evil actions. If that person had the sickness and rottenness in their bone marrow, would you let your one and only son give their clean, pure health away and take and suffer that for them? I would not do that in a million years. But this is what God did on Good Friday for us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a good person, for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's word. We pray. God most holy, look with mercy on this, your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed, be given over into the hands of the wicked, and suffer death upon the cross. Keep us always faithful to him, our only Savior